You're listening to the Study Legal English podcast, helping lawyers and law students become fluent in legal English. For more information, visit studylegalenglish.com. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of the Study Legal English podcast. I am your host, Louise, and today is the 30th of September. Do you know what that means? Well, it means that it's International Translation Day. So, happy Translation Day to all of you translators out there who listen to the podcast. Today's episode is quite appropriate for this special occasion because it's an interview with Richard Leckie. He is a legal English translator. I'll speak a little bit more about Richard in a moment, but first I want to just quickly mention that this podcast episode is sponsored by italki. Now, if you listen to the podcast uh, regularly, you will have heard me talking a lot about italki in the last few episodes. So by now, you're probably pretty aware that this is a platform where you can learn a language online. It's a place where you can find a teacher to help you on your language learning journey. My guess is that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have got a goal to learn and improve your legal English. Otherwise, you are definitely listening to the wrong podcast. For those of you who do have this goal, I just want you to take a moment to think about why this is important for you. Pause the podcast and think about it. Once you've got your reason, write this reason down because it's your motive. It's the reason you need to tell yourself when you're making excuses and saying, I don't have time. I'm too busy. I don't think I'm good enough to learn legal English. It's the reason you need to tell yourself so that you stay motivated and remember why this goal is important to you. If you don't have a good enough reason, then I'm afraid to say that you are never going to achieve your goal because it's clearly not important enough for you to make it a priority and therefore you will keep making excuses and you're never going to progress. So you need to have an important reason why you're studying and now that you've firmly established your motive, how do you achieve this goal? Winners set goals and they put in the effort every day to improve. So if you want to be an international lawyer, a great student, a well-respected legal English translator, whatever it is, this is not magically going to happen. You need to put in the hard work. You need to self-study. But on top of this, and I can't stress this enough, is that you really need a teacher. So I recommend that if you're serious about reaching your goal, I recommend you find a teacher to help you. You can probably find one in your hometown. Maybe your work can arrange a teacher for you. But if you can't find one, you can also find a teacher online. Don't be scared to try it out. Don't let fear stop you from reaching your legal English goals. One of my most recent students had been putting off having lessons online for a long time. He finally plucked up the courage to book a class and he told me that he's just really blown away by how easy and convenient it is and uh, he's super happy about it. So if you do want to try out italki, just visit 
go.italki.com forward slash study legal English and you'll get $10 for free when you purchase your first class. I will, of course, leave the link in the show notes. So back to the interview. Now, this interview I carried out over the summer when I was in London and it was a lovely summer's day. Richard and I met at the National Theatre, which is a brilliant venue. It's based on the south bank of the River Thames. And we sat outside on one of the many terraces overlooking Waterloo Bridge, which is a famous landmark in London, which is close to the London Eye, the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben. So if you are ever in London, I recommend popping into the National Theatre. It's a very big building doesn't look that nice from the outside, but I can assure you that it's really, really lovely inside because if you go upstairs, you will find little doors going on to the outside and there's lots of terraces, lots of balconies with some of the best views that you can get in London. And uh, it's not actually that well known. It's certainly never been very busy when I've gone in there. And um, of course, there are cafes inside as well. So you could always have a nice cup of tea or coffee. So although you can't see what I'm talking about because you're listening to the podcast, if you're interested in seeing what I am talking about, I'd like to remind you that this episode is available on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com forward slash study legal English to find the video. And whilst you're there, why don't you subscribe to the channel? So now, the only problem with sitting outside was that it was a bit windy. So I do apologise because at points the wind does interfere a bit with the interview. What I can say is try to take this as a positive opportunity to figure out what Richard and I are saying. Use it as an opportunity to improve your listening skills. Many of my students always complain that one of the most difficult things for them is listening to people speaking on conference calls. They find it difficult because sometimes the line can be bad, there can be interference, people don't speak clearly, and so it can be difficult to understand what people are saying. So here's your chance to do some listening practice where the audio, I'm afraid, the quality is not completely perfect. Use it as an opportunity where you've got nothing to lose, you're not under pressure of being in a meeting where you really desperately need to understand what's being said and you need to respond Take this as an opportunity to challenge yourself. So my guest, Richard Leckie, is the founder of Contractually Speaking LTD, a London-based company specialising in legal translations. Richard has over 10 years of experience in the legal translation field with Spanish and French to English. He often writes about legal English translation on his blog, which you can find at www.contractually-speaking.co.uk. He also writes articles for other publications, such as for the Institute of Translation and Interpreting Bulletin. He's also very keen on teaching legal translation and has taught courses and spoken at many events for legal translators. In fact, he spoke at the Legal English event in London in 2018, which I was fortunate enough to be able to attend. And I first came across Richard because he's very active on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can find him by searching his name, Richard Leckie, or on Twitter, you can find him by searching at contract speak. 
So I follow Richard and I think he probably first caught my attention because he had posted something about attending a Ken Adams workshop on contract drafting. And I thought, hmm, here is a legal translator who is doing interesting things. He's obviously keeping up to date on lots of interesting topics. And I bet he'd be an interesting person to interview not just for me to gain some knowledge about legal translation, but also for you listeners out there to gain some tips about translation, to understand what resources you can use, and uh, to get the insight from someone who really knows what they're talking about. So I'm very pleased to have had the opportunity to interview him. And before we listen to the interview, I just have a very quick question for you listeners, and that is, Have you ever had to translate legal terms? If so, how do you do it? What resources do you use? How can you be sure you're using the correct legal English? Send me in your thoughts to louise at studylegalenglish.com or, of course, you can head to studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 82 where you can join in the conversation Of course, you can also do that on social media. So, happy listening, and now, let's go. So, first of all, Richard, Mm -hmm. um, I I know a little bit about legal translation, um, but uh, probably my knowledge is quite uh, uh, limited, and in in my idea of it, it's that you translate legal documents – Um, But can you explain exactly what it is, what happens from when you get a quote in your inbox to this final polished piece of legal translation work? What does it involve? Okay, Uh, so first of all, you're right, Uh, translation is always a document. So interpreting is uh, interpreting the uh, spoken form, uh, whereas translation is always the written form. Um, And basically, from when you first get a document... Uh, what you first need to do are just to check um, the basics that it is a le- that it is uh, something that you feel comfortable translating. So I translate legal things, but quite often a client will say this is a legal document, but it might have then it turns out it might have some architectural content or some engineering content. So first of all, I'd always check that I can translate it, or if I need to go and find someone to help me with certain parts of a document. Um, and then the other thing, sometimes clients can be juggling lots of different documents, so making sure that it is actually in the language they've said. They might say it's French and it turns out it's German and they just hadn't checked. So those are the kind of first checks that you do when you get a document. Um, and yeah, make, making sure that you feel comfortable translating the con- content. So um, I ha- receive most of my uh, emails, uh, well my clients, my, my work by email. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I'll get sort of a, uh, either a scanned file or um, or a word file to look through. Um, and as translators, we have a few um, bits of software that we can use to help us. And um, so basically, that just makes it into a working space where we can work and we can access um, a glossary and um, a record of previous translations that we've worked on. So if we've translated a certain phrase before, we can find how we've translated that again. It's quite useful. Yeah, very so there's a few softwares that are available. I use um, one called uh, SDL uh, Studio Trellis. Mm-hmm. So very useful one. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, basically the, the stages are that I will translate it and um, the best practice is to get somebody else to review my translation as well. 
Um, so the same way as if you were drafting something, you want someone to, to check that there aren't any obvious submissions, um, uh, typos or, or mistakes in the, in the translation. Uh, so often I'll uh, send the work off to a colleague who will then review it for me, send it back, and then I'll make the final changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then is that finished? Is it you send um, it off to the client? It can be, yeah. So clients often uh, might need a translation for different purposes, sometimes just to understand it, or sometimes they might be negotiating a contract, so they might come back with further changes and then need to update the translation accordingly. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of uh, things that might happen. Okay, good, very good explanation of, uh, you know, the process of what you do. And the first time I think I came across legal translation as a, as a, as a job was when I heard Juliet Scott speak, who's a very well-known, very well-respected linguist and translator. I heard her speak a couple of years ago at a, a legal English conference. And uh, she just explained how complicated and difficult it can be. And um, so I kind of thought, you know, how could anyone do that job? <laughs> it's so complicated. Um, why do you do it, Richard? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes more than others. Um, I've always liked languages. So um, I grew up um, learning to speak French at home. Um, my mum uh, speaks French and Spanish. My grandfather also spoke French. So languages had always been in the family. And um, being able to work with languages was really uh, a benefit for me. So I really enjoyed uh, getting to work with languages on a daily basis. Um, and then it's an added bonus to be working from one legal system to another. It's really interesting to, to be exploring those differences, especially between the uh, civil law countries and common law. Uh, it does really raise a minefield of, of difficulties with the terminology sometimes. Yeah. Um, so you're always, you're always busy, you're always thinking carefully about how, how to uh, work from one language to the other. And um, it, it's a really interesting job, actually. Yes. Um, but some of those difficulties can be hard to, to overcome. So um, sometimes, for example, you'll have um, a difficulty of uh, false equivalences, where there might be a term that sounds uh, quite similar to another one in another language, but actually it's, it's defined in a completely different way. So you do have to really uh, bear down to the roots of, of where terms come from, and uh, maybe go back to the legislation or the case law to look up um, its origins and then be able to translate it from there. So there's, there is a lot of play when you're working Okay, and um, I uh, had a look on your website and you mentioned that you're very, and even, I mean, I can tell when you post up on LinkedIn that you're very pro um, a modern style of drafting and you mentioned on your site that that's your style that you like to translate into. Uh, You give this example of the modern style versus the kind of old traditional, some might say the archaic style. Uh, I think you give like an example of a date. So you mentioned like uh, a traditional style might translate a date as on this day of the 26th of May 2019, everything written, whereas a modern style would just simply say on 26th of May 2019 with the numbers. Why is it that you prefer this this modern style? Yeah, so I think really between like a modern or a traditional or even archaic style, that's perhaps just a, an oversimplification. There's yeah. definitely a range between the two. Um, and the date example is, is a, just a simple one as well. Mm. Um, in uh, Spanish or French documents, you tend to find they will sometimes um, write it out fully in words. And 
and then in, in English you can just simply write it in a short date format. Uh, but it's really just um, to try to give a simple example of what's a, a bigger issue at play. Um, so I think as a translator you're always working as an interpretation of the text. Um, so it's not that there's a right or a wrong answer always, um, but you're trying to put it to a way that's easy for the, the reader to understand. And with um, some documents, you're almost reading something that's almost unintelligible. It's really very, very difficult to pick apart. So I feel for the reader who perhaps is only going to spend a, a short time or, or just wants to get there quicker, it's better to, uh, once you've picked apart something very complex, to put it back into a form that's re easier to read without, um, without adding any extra or less ambiguities or without changing the meaning, mm. just making it an easier form for the reader to get to. Yeah. Um, so um, I would definitely recommend just writing a short date format um, rather than on the second of the month of the year, etc. Um, but that, that really just encapsulates a bigger problem that we face as translators. Yeah. Um, and um, we have to try to find what our clients want as well. Um, so that's um, also an issue when clients don't always give you feedback on what they want. Um, well, they don't always give you feedback on that. They don't tell you the purpose of the translation before you start it. Um, so Juliet Scott has done quite a bit of work on that. Mm. It's actually her, her PhD thesis that was published in, in a, I guess, legal, legal translation outsourced, which came out last year. And um, so there's some love interesting work in there. Uh, but often clients don't fully say the purpose of the translation. Mm. So she came up with a template in her book on, on how we could make a better find with my clients that I also have to say how I would translate it and then we get some feedback going there as well. So you tend to build up kind of a, a style sheet for each client or what their personal preferences are between different terms or different uh, styles of translation as well. Do you ever have any difficulties with clients? Like for example if they perhaps don't like this modern style, they prefer, maybe they challenge you on some of the uh, yeah. translations or the changes, maybe like the shorter sentences, they prefer the longer sentences, have you had anything like that? Sure, yeah, you do get some, some pushback from clients sometimes, um, so when you're ch saying changing sentences, um, sometimes a, a Spanish document can come up with a sentence that's 150 words, 200 words, and, and you can actually split that into smaller sentences without changing the meaning. Mm. So we'll try to do that uh, when I can. Um, I find some of the clients that give more pushback tend to be perhaps uh, European lawyers who don't speak English as their first language. Um, and they are more trained in the, in the French or the Spanish style, or perhaps Italian too, I imagine. Um, and they see that they think that language should be legalese, they think that it should be that. Um, whereas they don't realise that the trends are changing, um, especially in the UK or, or, or Australia and the States too, I'd say. Um, but they don't see that, the change, that these changes are taking place. Um, so they, they can be quite anti modern, more modern English, or, or, uh, or quite anti some of the ideas that Ken Adams would have, for example. And do you, if you have a client that does take that stance, do you try to explain, I, I don't know, the benefits?
benefits of using this more modern style or do you kind of yeah. just say okay <laughs> yeah no I would definitely try to explain that um, this is a more established uh, English or this is um, these are the benefits of using this type of English uh, but it can come to an extreme where you just say look some, maybe it's better if you find another translator because you're trying to do something that's not necessary and yeah. I don't really want to carry on working on this basis. So yeah. that has happened uh, once or twice, but it's very, very rare, really. Yeah. Like that, like it can be quite challenging to, if somebody is absolutely like uh, dead set on this traditional style and has the yeah. idea that this is what, I don't know, what it means to be a lawyer is to use some really heavy legalese. Yeah. I can understand that you know it might feel like you're talking to a brick wall in some cases it can be quite difficult it's one of the challenges that I'm sure a lot of people listening to the podcast will uh, sympathise or empathise with, with you uh, on, that, on that situation I think so yeah I think perhaps um, some translators will prefer more of the traditional style but then I think there will be others who will prefer more modern style as well so there will be both, both, both yes. counts on the client on, yeah. uh, on the provider side as well yes yeah I have to say, I'm, I'm more pro on the modern style as well, sure. and also yeah. in my teaching techniques, I, yeah. I always try to stay on the, the more modern style. But it's important to understand the, the archaic style as well, and, yeah. Um, okay, let me... And I think it's important to say that you wouldn't change things unnecessarily. If it was, if it was a part of the document that had already been written in English or something, and you were trying to, or it was, or you were, or you were updating the translation and then 95% or 90% of it done already, you wouldn't go back and change all of that either. It's, it's really about balance and finding the right, the right point there. Yes. So how do you make uh, decisions about the kind of style that you will use? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually am quite interested in this question. I did a, a survey together with a colleague last year and we tried to measure how other translators working in the same language pair and making some of the decisions. Um, So if you have a look at my blog, I've got the results of that survey there. Um, And basically we just asked translators um, 10 questions on how would you translate this phrase? Would you choose this version or this version? Uh, So we really tried to pick apart between a more modern or a more traditional style. Um, So I personally would go for more of a modern style, uh, but I wanted to see what others would choose there. So I think it's... um, it's really interesting when you start to ask how people translate things because everyone translates in a different way. Mm. Uh, but you just tend to find sort of two two camps there. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm curious to know the results. We're going to be <laughs> looking up on your blog <laughs> straight after this uh, yeah, interview. Yeah, we've got all the results there. Yeah, okay, I will leave a link to that. That's quite interesting. Okay, so you mentioned a couple of resources already. You said that you use specific... Um, I can't remember the name of them, but I will leave the or any links that we mentioned today. I'll leave in the show notes. Sure. Um, so, how do you stay up to date? Are there any other resources that you recommend? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I like Ken Adams' uh, blog and his, his book as well, the Manual of Style for Contract Drafting. Um, Brian Gardner's got a few books that were worth reading as well. Um, I actually published a short reading list um, uh, earlier this year mm. and a few books that I found uh, quite useful. Yes, yeah. But also attending uh, workshops in, in, in law and things, and workshops and, and talks and, and staying up to date with reading as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. I saw yeah. your post about the books that you recommended, and yeah, uh, I'll I'll leave a link to it um, for this because it was but, quite a good yeah, list. Just a very short list, really. But yeah. Some, some ideas that I found useful. Yeah, yeah. Very helpful. Very helpful. 
and um, so moving on, um, there's been a lot of talk recently, or well, it's been going on for quite a long time about AI um, yeah. and translation, and some people fear that machine, because of machine learning, these automated contract drafters and automated translators will take all of the jobs of real human being translators like yourself. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about this or what's your take on it? I think um, machine translation is getting better, uh, it is out there, um, but also I think you have to be wary of some of the claims being made, um, that it's reaching human parity or things like mm. that, which are clearly not true. Um, and also be wary of who are making the claims. Uh, often it's people who are selling machine translation or who are researching machine translation. Mm. So they do have um, a sort of a, a an reason, agenda. Yeah, an agenda there. Mm. Um, machine translation is also changing as well. So um, previously it was a statistical uh, model, and now it's a neural model, mm -hmm. um, which are the new models being used by uh, Google and another uh, machine translation. Um, groups um, and they are actually uh, changing in, in the risks involved there as well um, so because um, of the way that they work um, they can be increasing the risks that they're putting into the translation um, so you do see some uh, that um, while it may read better it may be, look more like a polished copy um, it's actually you're not somebody thinking behind it. It's, it's just that's the, it's, it's a machine that's trying to produce a more polished copy, um, and sometimes that can in, increase the errors of um, uh, omitting a negative or, or putting in a negative where there wasn't one in the, the original, um, or um, using false equivalences or repeating uh, translation mistakes that have already been put out there, so they can propagate those mistakes. Um, so. I don't see it taking away our jobs uh, as translators now, but I do see it uh, perhaps being used more in some of the easier things or where there's or lower risk um, uh, content. Um, so for um, translators, I think there'll always be work out there, um, but it may be that we work more on high risk um, and um, high value um, documents, and it may be that it's more specialized content as well, that uh, you work more with a, a legal translator or very highly specialised legal translator, um, rather than uh, some of the easier translation work that was available before. Perhaps. Yes, yeah, 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 because uh, I mean, always it seems like as a translator, one of the most crucial things that you do is that you make those choices between, you know, when there are these, uh, when there is a choice of uh, two different words that you could use, that's where it comes down to one, a really, really important thing that you do. Yeah, it can come down to very nuanced decisions there, very, yeah. very fine decisions. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that could be very difficult for, or very easy for a machine to get wrong if they maybe yeah. choose one because it's used more frequently or something like Absolutely, that, like yeah. Uh, yeah. haven't got the, the full context yeah. and the knowledge of the legal system behind you. Yeah. Um, yes, very interesting. And uh, so one other point uh, I'd like to ask you is that for people who are interested in a career in legal translation, do you have any tips for them? Sure, yeah. Um, a lot of the national uh, translation organisations provide some really good advice or, or workshops. Um, so in the UK you've got uh, the Institute of Translation and Interpreting, the ITI, and the Chartered Institute of um, 
but the advice for translators or for people interested in going into translation is really to um, to have a specialism to either bring something from your, your background or to uh, to develop a specialism as you go along that's a very good point and what about if they do choose legal English do you have any yeah. words of warning or words of wisdom um, I think uh, try to get a mentor out there there's um, some really good mentoring schemes um, and there's really basically it's it's quite a complex task so if you can have somebody to review your translations then that can be a really good way to, to get better mm. um, and I think yeah working with a partner is always very advantageous yes yeah that sounds like a really good good way to work and uh, what has been like a great achievement for you as a translator have there been any like you know I don't know key documents that you translated that you thought yes okay. uh, well actually one, one job that was quite interesting last year was um, a website for a law firm um, and they were translating all their content to be able to try and find more clients in the States or, or elsewhere in Europe so it was really interesting to work with them and, and discuss very uh, carefully with them how they pre uh, presented the tone of the website and actually that changed quite a lot from French to English because um, in French you would find a very very formal style in your marketing documents whereas in English you could change it up a bit and you mm. could go for a uh, slightly more relaxed tone and go for slightly shorter sentences and, and things like that so it was very interesting to, do, to work on that job. Mm, yeah. Very nice, I think that's uh, one difficulty that sometimes non-native speakers have mm. uh, with English is getting the register right yeah. even sometimes with emails yeah. like they overdo it on the politeness or yeah, they definitely yeah. Or they then do it too direct, or they use too f much yeah. formal language. So I can imagine that that was quite an interesting job and uh, and very yeah. useful for the law firm. So yeah, definitely, and yeah. I hope it found them some more business as well. So yeah, obviously it was very important to them. So we discussed it quite a lot over the phone to try and perfect everything in there. So thank you, Richard. That's been really, really, you know, helpful and insightful and very nice to learn about your work. So thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you, Louise. Thanks thank for inviting me. Thank you. No problem. And um, for listeners out there, I highly recommend that you check out Richard's website. It is www.contractually-speaking.co.uk. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Perfect. And uh, I also recommend that you connect with Richard on LinkedIn, look him up, and on Twitter you can find him, is it at Contract Speak? Contract Speak, that's right. Yeah, yeah at yeah. Contract Speak. So find him on Twitter because you, know, you often post really helpful stuff, so good. very, very good. And uh, for more information you can head over to studylegalenglish.com. So thanks for listening and see you next time. Great. So I hope you enjoyed that interview and you found it useful. Don't forget to send me in some answers to my questions, which were, have you ever had to translate legal terms? If so, how do you do it? What resources do you use? And how can you be sure you're using the correct legal English? Send me in your thoughts to louise at studylegalenglish.com. Join in the conversation on social media, or of course, head over to the Study Legal English website where you can leave a comment on the episode page. 
If you're a podcast member, then you can also head over to the Study Legal English website for all of your member benefits. The page for this particular episode is studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 82. So thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Study Legal English podcast. If you really want to get ahead, why not become a member and gain access to many learning resources? Visit studylegalenglish.com forward slash pricing 